From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, a different kind of steroid, anacortate. You've got a drug that's very safe and is delivered in a very safe way outside the eye and in a very convenient manner every six months. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Slachter declares consulting fees and contracted research for Alcon Laboratories, Novartis, and QLT. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646 646- Eight zero eight zero two three one. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial zero two zero seven five five eight eight two seven five. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Intraocular steroids have enormous potential as primary or adjunct antiangiogenic agents. But these beneficial effects are inextricably linked to less desirable effects like cataract formation and glaucoma. And intraocular injection, though it has the enormous benefit of getting the medication directly to the site where it is required also carries risks of endophthalmitis and retinal detachment. Enter anacortave and periocular posterior juxtascleral depot PJD administration. But before I steal his thunder, let's have Jason Slachter explain. Jason, what is anacortave? Okay, anacortave acetate is a molecule which was derived from a steroid backbone. Uh, The company that developed it was working on various steroid compounds to see if they could identify steroid derivatives that might have some potential to be anti-angiogenic agents. Some of this work was uh, generated by some early reports by Judah Folkman and others who looked at the concept of anti-angiogenesis, the idea of using drugs to suppress the development of blood vessels, primarily initially in tumor work and cancer. And the, this spurred the company to Alcom Laboratories in te- Fort Worth, Texas, to start to experiment with a number of different steroid derivatives to try to identify ones that might be powerful enough to be anti-growth agents or anti-neovascular, anti-angiogenic agents. And in doing all of the studies, they came upon this one particular derivative of the steroid, uh, which they called anacortave acetate. And it's novel enough that they actually created a new class of drugs called cortisines rather than cortisols. Cortisols are the typical steroids that we think about. And this is a new class. And the reason it's in its own class is that it is much more potent as an anti-angiogenic agent than regular steroids. But at the same time, it lost all of the steroid properties that we normally think of as a steroid. It's not an anti-inflammatory. And from the point of view of the eye, very important for the eye, it doesn't cause cataracts and it doesn't raise the intraocular pressure. So it has some good points of being an anti-growth agent, and it has lost some of the negatives of steroids, which are the potential to raise eye pressure and cause cataracts. So certainly some, some good qualities and, some, and the absence of bad qualities. 
I was just going to ask, what are the properties that distinguish anacortave from deposteroids like triamcinolone? Yeah, that's the, there are, the, the main differences revolve around these changes, just some minor structural changes within the steroid backbone really took away all of these so-called glucocorticoid properties. So you lose all the negatives, the steroids, we normally think of the steroids as being anti-inflammatory. It's maybe the good and bad side to anacortave. It doesn't have any anti-inflammatory capabilities. So um, that may be a negative, certainly with respect to certain eye diseases. It's nice to have an anti-inflammatory like a regular depot steroid. The difference, however, is that steroids have a significant problem with the eye with raising eye pressure and causing cataracts, and anacortave has none of that potential whatsoever. So it's really a tailor-made compound as an anti-growth agent rather than an anti-inflammatory. A very important aspect of it and very important for future use in combination with other drugs is that in uh, certain preclinical studies, they looked at whether or not, although it's not an, not an anti-inflammatory, does it block anti-inflammatory activity of other steroids? And the answer is no. So we were very excited to see that, that while itself, it by itself is not an anti-inflammatory, it doesn't inhibit anti-inflammatory action of other steroids just given at the same time. So it certainly opens the door to the concept of other combinations of treatments. Uh, that would have anti-inflammatory benefits, but certainly anacortave does not. So that's its main difference. A more potent anti-angiogenic drug and, a, uh, and does not have anti-inflammatory activity and does not cause cataracts or raise eye pressure. Prior to this study, what evidence existed that anacortave is able to suppress angiogenesis? Anacortave was used in, it's been a total of 10 preclinical models, uh, various animal models from the... Uh, uh, chick membrane model to uh, rat pups to oxygen, uh, uh, you know, they raise rat pups in oxygen to try to stimulate blood vessel growth in the retina. There are some models of choroidal neovascularization where they uh, deliver little beads under the retina in rabbits to stimulate blood vessel growth that you would normally see in macular degeneration and other neovascular processes. And in all 10 clinical models, uh, preclinical models, where they used anacortive acetate, they showed statistical suppression of abnormal vessel growth um, either when applied before the stimulus or after the stimulus. So it, it, has, it is probably one of the most extensively studied in preclinical models as far as the capability to suppress blood vessel growth before it ever went into clinical use. Can I have you describe the design of the study? Yes. The, the way the study was designed will require, we'll take one step backwards, and that is that the, historically, um, at the time that, that the anacortave versus photodynamic therapy trial was, was designed, we at that moment had two pieces of information, and that really drove the study design. Piece of information number one was that anacortave acetate was looked as a monotherapy treatment used as a single therapy for people with choroidal neovascularization or abnormal vessel growth due to macular degeneration in a 128-person study where they were randomized to receive one of three doses of anacortave acetate or placebo every six months and followed for the course of a year to see what would happen. They were actually followed for a full two years, but the primary outcome was a year. And in that study, they found that the 15-milligram dosage gave the best result and was statistically significantly better than the placebo group in reducing vision loss. In that particular study, most of the patients had the type of neovascularization that we classify as classic. 
either a large portion of it was classic or at least a small portion was classic. So we had a majority of patients having these classic type of blood vessels. And in this particular study, we saw that about 78% of the patients had less than three-line vision loss, what we call so-called moderate reduction in moderate vision loss. And we were excited because that's a very good number. And so we were very happy that more than three-quarters of the patients had less than three-line vision loss versus the placebo group, which was in the 50% range, 54% range. So we had a marked reduction in vision loss. That was one piece of information. At the same time, we had results from the photodynamic therapy trials using Visudine or vertiporfin. And in that clinical trial, there was statistically significant reduction in loss of vision in the patients with mostly classic blood vessels using Visudine. And so we had the results of the Visudine therapy, which showed a reduction in vision loss, and we had the results of a separate study with anacortive acetate in a similar group of patients that had a reduction in vision loss. And the idea was, well, we have two different therapies, and since you really can never compare one study to another, you can't really say that one seems better than another without putting them head-to-head. So the idea was, let's do a study that compares two treatments, both of which seem to be statistically superior to placebo. Let's compare the two to each other, to see how they behave. Now, by the time the study was started, the photodynamic therapy was approved in the United States and elsewhere for the treatment of what's called predominantly classic choroidal nevascularization, or abnormal vessels containing at least 50% of the total area of involvement having this classic or aggressive type of nevascularization. So here we are with a treatment that's now approved, and we want to compare a new treatment, in this case anacortive acetate, to the established treatment, which is photodynamic therapy with vertiporfin or visudine therapy. So that's kind of the background in how the study was, was designed and why the comparison was being made. A very important thing to understand about studies, and it helps to understand why you can sometimes have a positive, result, a, a, a positive outcome and a, and a negative uh, result, so to speak, of your, of your study. In this particular study, we really could not use any placebo patients. It was no longer ethical at this point to have a person not get treated because we now have proven therapies. So you can't say, I want to do a big study and compare my new drug with nothing to see if it's statistically better so I can go to the FDA and get it approved because, in fact, we already have a proven therapy, and that's vertiporfin or photodynamic therapy with, with Visionine. So how do you do a study? Well, you design a study called a non-inferiority study. And I will tell you now, I'm not a statistician, that every time I try to explain it, I get more confused. But I'll give you a, I'll try to do the best I can in my limited understanding. When you design a non-inferiority study, you simply say the following, and that is that since I can't directly compare it to placebo, what I'm going to do is do a study that says that am I confident that my new treatment will behave at least as good as the other treatment did in comparison to its placebo in the first trial. That's the basic idea. So what you do is you say, I want to have a drug that I'm 95% confident is going to behave within a certain range of outcome compared to a drug that we already know showed a statistical benefit over doing nothing. So that's the concept. So 
What you do to design the study is you say, I'm going to treat the patients either with my new drug under the regimen that it's administered, and I'll talk about that in a second, how anticortate is given, versus the current established regimen of the drug or the treatment that was being used in its established way. In other words, I'm going to compare it to exactly what was done in the original trial where you compared it against placebo so that you maintain all the parameters as close to being the same as you can. And then you pick an endpoint which you like and which regulatory agencies like the FDA say is acceptable for your statistical test. Now, in this particular study, the statistical test that was chosen was based upon all of the patients in the original study group of Visudine versus placebo. In that study, that included all different types of lesions, mostly with either predominantly classic, meaning it was 50% was classic, or what they call minimally classic, meaning there was some classic, but it was less than 50% of the entire lesion when you looked at it on an angiogram. In that total population, the difference between the treated group with Fijidine and the placebo group was 14%. There was a 14% absolute difference between the outcome of the treated group and the outcome of the placebo group. And it's generally accepted that your statistical test will be 50% of that difference, or 7%. So what you have to say is that you're going to use what's called a 7% test on the outcome of this new trial to determine that your error bars, so to speak, are within 7% of the outcome of your Visionine treatment. Now, if this is confusing, it's okay because it confuses me. But the bottom line is that the test that was chosen to see whether or not it was felt that anacortive acetate was not inferior to Visionine, and that's what you say, that it was not inferior to, was a test that used the confidence interval based on all of the patients enrolled in the original trial. Now, there's a problem with that. In the original trial, the FDA did not feel the evidence was strong enough to approve on the entire population. They only approved treatment for those that were predominantly classic. For Visudine. For Visudine. So that's what it was approved by the FDA for. And in that group of patients, the relative difference between the Visudine group and the placebo group was actually 28%. Therefore, if you take that 50% rule, the confidence interval, the test that should have been chosen for the study should have been 14. It wasn't. For whatever reason, the decision was made in consultation with regulatory agencies to go with the tighter interval of 7%. That is translates into what I will tell you in a minute is a failure of the primary endpoint of the study, which is it failed the non-inferiority test. So, that's, the, that's how the test was designed statistically. Now, how was the study designed? Anacortic acetate is very unique, and one of the things that a lot of us are excited about its potential is that unlike a lot of other treatments, some of the newer anti-angiogenic drugs that are being used are given by direct injection into the eye, and as often as every four or six weeks. Anacortic acetate is delivered outside the eye with this curved blunt cannula every six months. So here's a drug that we can give outside the eye without having to put a needle directly inside the eye. And instead of bringing someone back every four or six weeks, we can do this treatment every six months and potentially get a positive outcome. So obviously very excited about the molecule. Another important thing is that in all the studies to date, both in preclinical animal studies and in humans, we have never found any toxicity to the drug, none. 
So there doesn't seem to be any safety issue with the drug itself. So you've got a drug that's very safe and is delivered in a very safe way outside the eye and in a very convenient manner every six months. So certainly those of us that were involved in this trial were extremely excited. Here's a, here's a treatment with the potential to really give us a, an outcome that would be beneficial to the patient's vision and beneficial to their safety and beneficial to the convenience of, of their lives. This study was, it's a fairly large study. Uh, the clinical trial, we enrolled a total of 530 patients, and they were randomized into one of two groups. They either received anacortave acetate every six months with a sham photodynamic therapy, or they received photodynamic therapy every three months according to the guidelines of the original photodynamic therapy trial, and a sham drug delivery of, you know, a sham posterior drug delivery of, of anacortive acid, obviously the sham placebo, in a, uh, every six months. So it was every, patients would come in every three months at baseline, to, to kind of summarize, at baseline, half the patients at baseline would get anacortive only, and half the patients would get a photodynamic therapy treatment. They'd come back at three months, they'd have angiographic testing, and then if leakage was seen, the rule was you would go ahead with photodynamic therapy. Well, half the patients would get real photodynamic therapy, and the other would be getting a placebo because they would have actually received anacortave at baseline. At six months follow-up, we go through the same scenario. No matter what, if you were in the anacortave group, you got anacortave. If you were in the placebo group, in the PDT group, you got a sham drug delivery. And then an angiogram was assessed to determine if you needed PDT, and then you either got PDT or got a sham PDT, depending on which group you were in. And that happened, that kind of scenario went on for the full two years. So at three-month intervals and at three-month intervals, with the, you know, the middle intervals were just a PDT decision, and at the six-month visits, uh, they was the anacortive acetate or sham automatically, and then a decision regarding additional PDT or visualized. Now, the inclusion criteria for this study were based on the inclusion criteria for, for the, the TAP study, correct. It was the, it was right, the, for the PDT it was, study. It was based upon the results in the from the vertiporfin study and also for the FDA approval. The idea was you can't really compare a treatment against an unapproved therapy. So the decision was base the treatment guidelines, the base the eligibility criteria around the original uh, guidelines and the FDA approval, which was lesions that were predominantly classic, less than 5,400 microns in size, and those were the basic, and with at least 50% of the total lesion had visible neovascularization, not blood or thick fluid or something that was blocking things. So that was, that was the design. Can I have you walk me through the periocular posterior juxtascleral depot PJD administration? Oh, sure. What happens for that technique is basically the person is placed in a chair, uh, they're given uh, antiseptic and antibiotic drops. They have a lid speculum placed between the lids to help keep the lids apart. You have the patient look down and in, which exposes the superior temporal portion of the surface of the eye. You then measure 8 millimeters back using a caliper to get to exactly 8 millimeters. This gives you an area where you are both over the conjunctiva and Kenon's capsule. You take a very small you make a very small incision with scissors directly down and you make a little tiny snip. But what you want to do is make one small snip all the way down onto the sclera. So you take the scissors, you put them right down onto the tissue and you snip once. The idea being that you get a very small incision 
uh, through the conjunctiva and through penons, which now exposes the surface of the square of the eye. Then you take this specially designed cannula, which is designed to, to match the curvature of the eye, and it's attached to the syringe. You take the cannula and you very slowly slide it right in through that opening, right on the surface of the sclera, and slide it right over the surface of the eye. This allows you to be under the tenons capsule on the surface of the sclera, and you slowly slide it back. If you get any resistance, you slide it back, and then you start again. The idea is it should slide nice and very smoothly into this potential space between tenons and the scleral surface. Once the cannula is set into position, it's designed so that when the curvature is completely in, in other words, the straight part of the, of the cannula comes down and makes a bend, when, the, when everything's invisible except right to the bend, it's been designed to have the tip sitting directly over the macular area. And on the undersurface of this blunt cannula is a little opening, and what you do is you gently and slowly inject the drug through the cannula. What it is, it delivers it onto the surface of the sclera as a liquid. It goes out as a liquid and fills that space in the back, and it basically will go all through the back area. One of the problems we saw in the study that we'll come to is when you, in, when you kind of do this delivery and you push on the syringe, if you do it a little too quickly and if you don't have the edges of the wound completely covered, and the way we protected it, we tried to prevent drug from coming out by putting two Q-tips one on either side of the cannula. Obviously, that doesn't completely cover the opening. And then you deliver the drug. The trouble is, many times when you're delivering the drug, some of the drug squirts back out again through the opening. Because obviously, there's some, there's a, although it's a potential space, there's orbital tissue around which gives some resistance. And the path of least resistance is back out through the opening you made. So the idea is to very gently and slowly deliver the drug, holding the Q-tips on either side of the opening, and once the drug is delivered, you keep the Q-tip on the opening, you slowly slide the cannula out, just hold the Q-tip over the area, and then when you're done, you can put a little antibiotic. You don't have to put any stitches or anything. Procedure takes a couple minutes. Patients usually find it very comfortable. And then when you're done, you usually put a little patch on the eye to help keep the drug from coming back out and leave it on for a few hours. So that's the anacortive delivery approach. What were your main outcome measures? The main selected primary outcome was the percentage of patients with less than three-line vision loss, what's called moderate vision loss. The reason that this endpoint was chosen is that was the traditional endpoint for a lot of these studies, and in particular was the primary endpoint in the photodynamic therapy trial. So that was the primary endpoint in the vertiporfin trial. The idea was to follow the same endpoint to allow us to be able to assess its, you know, the relative merits of anacortate versus photodynamic therapy. Jason, what is intent to treat, and was this an intent to treat study? This is actually a per protocol versus intent to treat. Um, I can only tell you the general idea behind it. Again, I'll feel that to my, in my level of ignorance, the basic concept is that in trying to look at a non-inferiority study, which is this, you want to make sure that the two treatments are similar. What you don't want is you don't want to include anything that might be outside the basic parameters. So you do what's called a per-protocol analysis. You only analyze results from patients who followed all the steps in the treatment because it apparently makes it more difficult to prove that you have a therapy that is similar because the idea is that there's variability in the treatment. It might allow for 
uh, a different, again, I'm telling you what I've been told. It allows for a wider, uh, the, the greater possibility that it'll look better if you allow all the patients to be considered. So it's a more rigorous test for non-inferiority. It's not the case with a superiority trial. If you're comparing yourself to nothing, for example, a placebo, and you say, all I want to do is am I statistically better than product X or better than nothing, then you want to look at everyone because if you only look at patients that were followed per protocol, there may be an issue with being able to follow the protocol. And since you're trying to say that it's, it's better than doing nothing, but many of your patients may actually have had nothing if you followed them, if you only chose the ones that follow the protocol, then it's a more rigorous test. So according to the statisticians, it's harder to prove your point if you follow a per-protocol analysis, meaning only people who did all the steps if you're doing a non-inferiority trial, and it's harder to prove superiority if you use the intent to treat. Which includes patients who were planned to have treatment regardless of whether the treatment actually took place. Well, it may have missed an appointment, may have not been eligible for every treatment, may have been, uh, you know, their, their follow was outside certain ranges, things like that. The, the important thing is we actually, in our paper, we actually reported both outcomes just to show that there was no major difference even though the required approach, this is regulatory requirements, use the per-protocol analysis, which is only look at people who follow the rules. That's, I've just been told basically that if you, a per-protocol is more difficult to prove non-inferiority and an intent to treat is more difficult to prove uh, superiority, and that's why you want to use the more difficult test to make it a fair study. That's what I was told. Great. That leads me to what I want to talk about next. What were the findings from this study? In the initial look at the data, the first thing you look at and say, hey, the, these, there were very striking similarity in the primary outcome. At the 12-month outcome, the two groups were very similar, 45% of the anacortate acetate patients and 49% of the vertiporfin-treated patients had less than three-line vision loss. And that difference is not statistically significant. So we have two treatments which are not statistically different. However, because it's a non-inferiority study and going back to the discussion on their non-inferiority, you have to then look at the difference of the two results and apply that confidence interval test. And in doing that, the confidence interval for anacortave ranged from about 5.5% better than PDT to 13% worse than PDT. So within that range of confidence, you might have been better by 5%, or you might have been worse by 13%. And because the confidence interval imposed at the outset of the trial was 7%, it failed to meet that endpoint. So we have a situation where the two treatments look very similar, and in fact, in the course of the study, the difference in outcome didn't differ by more than three letters, three letters on an eye chart. However, because the outcome was based on this non-inferiority statistical test, it actually failed to meet the primary endpoint, even though the treatments looked the same. Now, there are several factors that could have played a role in the results. Is it possible that reflux of medication could have correlated with a poor result? Um, And number two, the second treatments were planned for six months out, but presumably some of the patients could have come in later than that. Absolutely. Both of them played a role, and it goes to a third point that I'll discuss after that, and that's kind of putting it all in perspective. So remind me to come back to the third point. Um, Point number one had to do with drug reflux, and it was a very frustrating thing because 
as I mentioned in describing it, we knew up front, we knew from the animal studies and we knew from the early treatment in, in people when we were doing the early monotherapy trial that many physicians reported seeing some drugs squirt back out when they gave the injection. Well, okay, except that when we analyzed the first studies, there didn't seem to be a statistical difference, and the feeling was, okay, let's prospectively record it. So this was data that we knew up front might be valuable to collect. So we asked the investigators to please mark down whenever you deliver anacortase, to please write down whether you had reflux, whether you had drug that kind of squirted back out again. And we looked at the results and we said, here's our top results, 45% of the patients had less than three-line vision loss. And then we looked carefully at whether or not the reflux played a role. Well, I've heard people say, well, why are you going and looking at reflux? Well, if you believe that 15 milligrams of drug is a good amount of drug to deliver, and if some of the drug is squirting back out, then you're actually not delivering 15 milligrams. You're delivering a number less than the desired dosage for the study. So in fact, those patients aren't actually getting the dosage you set out to give because some of the drug is sitting out on their, on, their, on their skin. So we decided to very carefully look at this issue. And when you looked at the issue, there was a big difference. The number jumped to 50% of patients who did not have reflux in, in those, and by the way, it's, a, it's an easy number to remember. About half the patients had reflux and half the patients did not. And remember, this was prospectively recorded by the doctor at the time of the treatment. So if you look at it, half the patients had reflux and half didn't. And then if you look at the outcomes, the outcome at a follow-up visit was directly related to whether or not reflux was reported at the previous treatment. And let's think about this for a minute. What that means is that when you looked at the six-month vision data, if they had reflux recorded at baseline, they didn't do as well as if they didn't have reflux recorded at baseline. And then if you looked at the 12-month data, there was a direct relationship to whether or not reflux was recorded at the six-month treatment or not. Now, does that make sense? Well, it probably does because part of it has to do with the duration, and this ties into the treatment duration. If the drug lasts six months at a dosage of 15 milligrams, but if you didn't give 15 milligrams, then some of that drug is going to wear off before you reach the point where you get your next drug injection. So here you're faced with, I think I've got enough drug the way I've designed the study, but now half my patients aren't actually getting the full dose of drug. Therefore, by the time they come for the next visit, the drug's probably worn off, and during the time that the drug wasn't there, the blood vessels are starting to grow back. And therefore, their outcome is probably going to be worse than if I had enough drug left at the end of those six months to keep the blood vessels from growing. So that is the issue with reflux. The second thing had to do with treatment duration, and that, it revolves around the same concept, which is if I've got a drug that is going to work for six months and the person doesn't show up for seven months or six and a half months for that matter, then there's going to be a period of a few weeks where the drug level has dropped below the therapeutic threshold. And during that time, especially the first six months when the blood vessels are probably the most active, if you give those blood vessels a chance to break through and grow, then in fact, they're probably going to do worse than if you brought them back right on time. And in fact, when we analyzed that group of patients, we found that again, they did much better in the group that came in on time than those that were late for their six-month drug delivery. Now, when you looked at both parameters together, you really got a rather startling thing. Understand that it's not fair to say that 
what we find now changes the primary outcome. The primary outcome was that statistical test. But what it does say is when you look at both drug reflux and treatment interval, and you look at both together and say, just very simply in words, if I set out to give 15 milligrams of drug every six months, and if I, in fact, gave 15 milligrams every six months, as defined by no reflux and dosing at the six-month interval, 57% of the patients had less than three-line vision loss versus the 49% in the PDT group. And that would have very easily met the criteria. Now, you can't use that as your new endpoint. That's just not fair. But you can certainly say one thing, and it was a quote from someone who was fairly well-respected in our community, and he said, what you're looking at is simply a dose-response curve. If you give more drug at the right time, you get a better effect than if you give less drug. And that, he says, shows you that your drug is active. Because if the drug wasn't working at all, then it wouldn't matter how much you gave and when you gave it. But since it mattered so much, then there are a couple of assumptions. Number one, you'd better give the drug at the dosage you thought. And number two, you'd better go ahead and make sure you give it when you think you need to give it again. And that really was what we learned from this clinical trial. What are your plans to deal with the reflux issue going forward? Well, the reflux issue, to show how critical it was, one of the things that was done at the same time the study was going on was that a study was done at the, obviously the regulatory agencies require you to demonstrate whether or not there's any drug that's penetrating into the serum, into the body. You know, we're delivering the drug outside the eye, but you want to know is any of it getting into the systemic circulation. And in fact, there are nanogram levels of drug that are getting into the serum for a short period of time after you get a drug delivery, which is fine. It turns out that it was a very valuable study because in this study, a physician gave some volunteer patients drug delivery and measured the serum levels very closely over the first few weeks after drug delivery. At the same time, remember, this is going on during the same time as this clinical study when we did not know how important reflux was, but we did know it ought to be recorded. So in this little study that was done, the doctor was giving drug and he was actually recording at the same time whether or not he saw reflux when he gave the drug. When all of the patients were finished and the analysis was done of the serum samples, there was a four-fold difference in drug concentration in the serum at microscopic levels, mind you, but a four-fold difference between those that had the doctor had prospectively recorded reflux and those that didn't. So it was the first proof that a theory that, in fact, we're not getting enough drug was profound in that with those that had reflux, they got one-fourth the amount of drug getting into the serum than the ones that didn't have reflux, meaning we, in fact, were not getting enough drug to target. And that really proved so. Now we know we've got a problem. We knew it from the clinical outcome of the study. And we also learned from this study that we scientifically proved it in a, in a, in a masked fashion that having reflux only delivers a quarter, certainly at least using serum levels as a surrogate, is reducing the amount of drug being delivered to target. So what do you do? Well, very simple. Someone came up with a very ingenious but simple solution. And that is find a better way to prevent the drug from squirting back out through the opening. And it was done by developing what they called a counter-pressure device which for ophthalmologists, will, they will recognize when they see a picture of it, is not much more than a Wexel sponge that's been cut so that it's, you know, wider instead of a tip, it doesn't come to a tip, it, it, you know, it's cut about in half. And they made a little notch in it exactly the diameter of the cannula. And what you do is, when you've inserted the cannula through the little opening, 
you take this little device and you press straight down perpendicularly on the surface of the sclera. It makes a beautiful seal against the cannula, and it completely seals the conjunctiva and tenons down. And when you give the, now you give the drug delivery, there's almost no reflux recorded by anyone. At the same time, they reinforce the importance to all the doctors of doing the injection slowly, giving drug delivery very slowly, doing everything with the patient looking down, not putting any pressure on the eye, following various steps. The argument can be, well, how do you know it worked? Well, the FDA wanted to know that, so they suggested a small study be done, and 44 patients were, in fact, went back to that doctor who did the first pharmacokinetic study, where he did the study of the serum plasma levels, and he did the study over again except this time he followed all the rules and used the counter-pressure device. And he, again, recorded reflux. Of the 44 patients, zero had reflux recorded clinically. And when he analyzed the serum plasma data, the results showed that the patients all clustered around the upper level and matched the group that in the first study didn't have reflux. So this was a beautifully done, elegant study that said, we saw a problem. We've modified the technique and have this little device that prevents reflux. We repeat the same clinical study that we did before. In this case, 0% of patients have reflux, and all of the serum values cluster around that upper level, which is fourfold times greater than the ones that had reflux in the first group, which was a very nice way to very clearly prove that we've dealt with the problem of reflux. So we were, we were very happy about that. i got to tell you, it's not often that you can find a problem, solve it, and prove that you've solved it all in a very nice scientific way. Were there any safety issues with the patients, any adverse events? No. Interestingly enough, other than those related to the drug delivery, meaning since we're making a small SNP, patients complain of irritation for a couple of days. There'd be a little focal redness. Some patients reported a little itching. Uh, A few patients reported a little drooping in the lid. All of these resolved within 72 hours. So there were what we called um, delivery-related side effects, but absolutely no drug toxicity or side effects whatsoever. In particular, as we had assumed from the nature of this molecule, no increase in tracheal pressure and no cataract formation, which was obviously very critical to prove since we believed it shouldn't do that, and it didn't. So we were very pleased with that. Did the results vary by lesion size or by lesion type? Well, that, that's point number three. And point number three is that we learned an extremely valuable lesson from this study about the nature of this disease and the importance of when I started out by saying you never compare clinical trials. We set out with an assumption, and that was that we expected that photodynamic therapy in this group of patients, remember, the enrollment criteria was identical to, identical to the enrollment criteria in the previous photodynamic therapy trial and almost identical to the previous trial of anticoagulative acetate. So we would have expected then that we should have seen an outcome somewhere in the upper 60s for vertiporfin and in the upper 70s to low 80s for anticoagulative acetate with regard to, you know, present, you know, reduction in three-line vision loss. Instead, we saw numbers of 49 and 45. And again, part of that could be explained by reflux and, and timing, but not everything. We just didn't see the outcome we thought we would. And we said, well, there's got to be an explanation. Since it's not one treatment that's not behaving the same way, they're both not behaving that way. And it turned out that the kinds of lesions that we enrolled, remember when you have a criteria for a study, you set your guidelines saying they have to be predominantly classic and they have to be less than a certain size. But no one said they had to range in size very much. 
And in fact, in this clinical trial, the average size of the lesion was a little over one disc area. And it was a little bit more than three square millimeters. Well, we have never seen that in the trial before. In all the previous clinical trials we've had, the lesions tend to be four disc areas in size. That was the average size in the photodynamic therapy trial, and that was the average size in the anticortate trial. So these are small lesions. Now, you might think that that's a good thing and say, hey, these are small lesions, so that's, they should do better. The other thing we realized is that they were very young. Well, if you asked me to design a study and say where were the best patients to choose from, I would have said tiny early lesions would be the best kind of lesions to treat because after all, you'll have the best chance to help them except that there are some lesions which you don't have as good an outcome, and those are lesions that are very aggressively growing. And in previous clinical studies, we had not yet run into this group of patients, and that is these are small, very actively growing blood vessels, many of which have characteristics of what we call retinal angiomatous proliferation, which is a type of neovascularization where there's a retinal component to the whole problem. These vessels tend to respond very poorly traditionally to laser, to photodynamic therapy alone, to almost any of the known treatments we'd have until recently, that they respond very poorly. They're a highly aggressive type of blood vessel. So we looked at the study and we went, oh my God, here we establish a criteria for a study that's similar to a previous study, but we get lesions which are much younger, much smaller, much more aggressive, and with certain lesion types that we know have a terrible outcome. And there is no way to decide ahead of time, you know, how you're going to get patients. So as I said, the, the, one of the most important points we got out of this trial was you absolutely can't compare one trial to another because you simply don't know the difference in the types of lesions that you're going to get from one study to another because when we did the original trial with photodynamic therapy and the original trial with anacortic acetate, it was earlier in our studies and patients were farther along in the disease. They would often go to a doctor after having a problem for a while, and a local physician would see them. And at this time, remember, we had no proven therapies. So it was, well, maybe you want to be in a clinical study, and months might pass before they get enrolled. Now, patients are quickly identified, quickly referred to retinal specialists. And in many cases, the, in the investigators in this trial said, oh, I saw a new lesion, and they were starting to lose vision, and I really wanted to help them, so I put them in this study. And that's the whole nature of our, of our whole treatment. So I think one of the most valuable lessons we learned is that we need to not compare clinical trials one to the other, number one. And number two, lesion size is not the whole story. Lesion type, meaning predominantly in mineral classic, is certainly not the whole story. There are many other factors, including how aggressive the lesions are, how fast they're deteriorating, that may have a very, very important role in how different therapies work. So we, we learned a lot from this trial. Since the effect of Anacortev is presumed to be clinically primarily anti-angiogenic, and since vertiporphyrin is vaso-occlusive and, and not anti-angiogenic, are, are there plans to combine the two therapies uh, in the manner done now with vertiporphyrin and intravitreal triamcinolone? Um, it, we actually did. We conducted a trial. The trial was done a few years ago. Actually, we did it before we did this study. And in that trial, we did, it was a small study, 136 eyes, and we randomized them into either getting photodynamic therapy alone or photodynamic therapy with one of two doses of anacortive acetate. It was an exploratory study. It was not meant to be a large-scale trial, and therefore we just did a six-month study. 
what we did was we took the patients and we at baseline either gave them nothing, 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams of anticortive acetate given outside the eye, and then they would get photodynamic therapy treatment, and then they would come back in at three months, and if they needed another treatment, they would get it, and otherwise they'd be watched every month until six months, and then we decided, and then at six months we'd look and see how they were doing. The numbers were not big enough to get statistical data. It was just an exploratory study to say what happens if exactly as you said. What if you put them together? Well, in that study, the ones who got photodynamic therapy plus anacortate generally did better. The mean visions did better than the ones that got photodynamic therapy alone. And in one group of patients where the doctor said, I'm just going to give one photodynamic therapy treatment and the one anacortate acetate delivery, the average patient actually gained a little bit of vision. Now, these are small studies. This is nowhere near designed to be a, you know, it's not a phase three trial. You can't hang your head on it. But exactly the question you asked was asked, and it certainly suggests that combining these two treatments looks like it's better than, any one, than either one alone. What's more exciting is other kinds of combinations, which is what we're moving toward now, and that's, that's really more excited about that. Can you talk about that? Uh, the National Eye Institute and Alcon have reached an agreement very recently to do a combined trial to look at anti-VEGF therapy, uh, apparently Avastin, in combination with uh, anacortive acetate. And this really is, to me, very exciting. Remember, I mentioned that anacortate doesn't have any anti-inflammatory potential. Well, because of that, it also doesn't have an anti-permeability effect, meaning a non-leaking effect. So one of the downsides is that anacortate probably works on a nice, slow, gentle fashion in suppressing blood vessel growth but we like some of the results that we've seen from drugs like Lucentis and Avastin that very dramatically and very abruptly cause a reduction in leakage of the blood vessel. But you're talking about drugs that have to be injected in the eye every four, to, you know, every four weeks or so. So the idea was let's do a study that combines the benefits of both. Give them at the, you know, both from the beginning. Give them anticortate, which should provide long-term suppression of the blood vessels, along with a shorter-acting, more powerful anti-permeability drug like Avastin. The idea being that if we can immediately stop the leakage, allow the body to start to you know, clean up all this damage, and at the same time now start long-term chronic suppression of any additional blood vessel growth with the anticortase, we might be able to even get better vision outcomes, number one. Number two, improve safety because it might mean fewer injections, and fewer injections mean safer. And the third is we might make it a lot more convenient because maybe they only need a couple of Avastin injections, and then anacortate every six months will maintain them over the long term. So that's a study that, as I said, we just could announce that. It was very recently announced. Very exciting because it's the beginning of where I think we need to go, which is start to combine various products that we're using, short-acting, long-acting drugs. Even I can even go so far as saying a triple therapy might be exciting. Basal occlusive effect of photodynamic therapy, short-term permeability effect of one of the anti-growth, anti-permeability agents like Avastin or Lucentis, and then long-term suppression with anticortate. You know, we may really start to get even more dramatic and long-standing vision improvements for these patients. So I'm excited. I think, that, I think that's where we're headed. Here's the bottom line question. What do you do in your own practice? In my own practice right now, we are doing several things. Uh, patients are receiving, we have two primary therapies now only because the third one isn't available. We are using either photodynamic therapy often in, com- in combination with steroids with the intravitreal catalog or intravitreal avastin, mainly because we have not yet had access to Lucentis. 
Um, certainly, I think when Lucentis becomes available, it's going to become a major player. But I also don't think that photodynamic therapy is gone. Um, I would love anacortivacetate to be approved in the United States. It has been approved in Australia uh, for use in lesions with classic components. I would love to see it here because I think that ideal combinations would be to give, again, as I mentioned, in a clinical practice setting, what I would like to do right now is to give them short-term and long-term therapy. In the meantime, what I'm doing is either, again, PDT or vertiporfin with steroid or Abastin at the moment, and I'm likely to use a lot more Lucentis when it becomes available. Jason Slachter, thank you very much. My pleasure. Jason Slachter is clinical professor of ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine. His paper, Anacortave Acetate versus Photodynamic Therapy for Treatment of Subfovial Neovascularization in Age-Related Macular Degeneration, appears in the January 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Slachter or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.